Situational Awareness in Hostile Environments. This week, we're meeting Thomas Pecora, author of Guardian and former operative around the world. Welcome to The Circuit Magazine, the number one source of information on protection matters, the industry-leading magazine for all security professionals who want to stay ahead of the game. Looking at the Guardian life in the crosshairs of the CIA's war on terror. This week, we're meeting author Thomas Pecora to look at situational awareness, avoiding ambush in a global context. John, what a big topic. Is it likely that any EPO, CPO colleague would be ambushed in their day-to-day operations? Is this a relevant and re- relatable topic to them? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have to be careful not just to think about ambush as an ambush that you're going to drive into with uh, masked gunmen who are set up along some sort of embankment waiting for you to open fire, right? I mean, we can get ambushed in lots of different ways. And I know that a lot of Thomas's experiences do relate to gunfire, bombs, and explosions, right? However, I do believe that those lessons will carry across into all different walks. And certainly, we can be ambushed by the paparazzi. We can be ambushed in the sense that something's sprung on us, we're not prepared for it. So it's about situational awareness. It's about thinking ahead. It's about putting yourself in the enemy's shoes and thinking, what would they do? How would they have prepared for this? Putting yourself in that situation and thinking about the worst outcomes. Because these are transferable skills that people may or may not know they have or have not. In fact, even in uh, day-to-day operations, technology is helping us make this sort of judgment call. Um, I don't I don't know. Do you think that uh, technology is going to completely take over or, or do you think that this situational awareness piece is, uh, is very much up to the individual. No, technology won't take over. I, I really think while we're serving humans, while humans are part of the process, then the technology is only going to serve as a support piece. Ultimately, you need to know how to use it. And if there's a human enemy, and that could be the enemy within, you need to understand human behavior. And that takes us to a couple of podcasts back with Miranda and the lessons that we learned there. So yeah, I I love the new tech developments. I like to see what's going on. But ultimately, I think it comes down to the human interface. The human interface, indeed. And I think that's what uh, Guardian, you know, Thomas Pecora's uh, book is is looking at. Of course, it's a lot of uh, stories and encounters, but he's got a great experience in especially Southeast Asia, which has a completely different flavor to other regions. So I hope we're going to explore that. Um, It's going to be interesting, actually, because we're going to be interviewing him with uh, Sean West, who himself has experiences. And and I think that kind of approach to this interview is going to go really well. What, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I read Thomas's book, Guardian. It's a fantastic read. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what you pluck out of Thomas on that interview. It's a subject that's really pertinent for people working overseas, especially those in hostile environments. But I think the lessons will be transferable to all areas of executive protection and protection in general. Well, let's get into it. Let's meet Thomas Pecora, a former CIA officer who, who, who's had a 24-year career protecting America's intelligence personnel and senior USG officials. 
uh, in the war on terror. We're going to be joined by Sean West, and I'm very much looking forward to it. And now, let's meet one of the contributors to The Circuit magazine. We are here with Tom Pecora, founder of Pecora Consulting and security industry experts of many years. We're talking counter-ambush, and we're giving a special look to the region of Southeast Asia, uh, given that you know a lot of your expertise is there as well. Uh, we have three quick-fire questions for you, and, uh, and, and I hope we can spice up the debate this way. So, Tom... What's your biggest gripe or, or problem that you're trying to solve in this particular area of counter-ambush? Well, the, the training is always uh, a recurring theme. And it's something that uh, I think we go almost too much toward a technical side without starting with some of the basics and keeping the basics alive in our training. One of the things we found in my old organization at the CIA was we had to start out with a basic understanding of risk and then adjust from there. If you don't have a good basic understanding of your risk environment, you're not going to assess what needs to be done. You're not going to do uh, appropriate training and your, your chances of uh, survival are lowered just because of that. Okay, and, and, and I guess if it's right to say, where did your enthusiasm for this topic come from? Oh, uh, I, was, uh, I was a big adventure reader as a kid and, uh, and then I, I somehow stumbled into getting a job at the CIA, answering in the newspaper. And then an opportunity came up, uh, a unique opportunity to join a newly formed outfit within the organization that specifically did protective operations. And I was able to get into the first training class. And boy, that, that uh, was a, a big fork in the road in terms of my career. I ended up doing a lot more work overseas. I uh, got involved in all kinds of different areas of the business, including the operational side. And I got to see another side of the agency, actually, that, that didn't exist before, which is uh, protecting our people in, in dangerous places outside of the U.S. Awesome. No, I, I love that. And I love that tie back to uh, protective services and, and the, you know, the audience of the Circuit Magazine, uh, which, is, which is really good. And then, and then I guess, what would you most like people not in this subsector of security to better understand? Going back to the basics again, to actually be effective in security, you have to have a very uh, solid understanding of your environment. And that's where situational awareness comes in. And that's something that unfortunately is a, it's become a buzzword. You know, be aware of your surroundings, uh, keep your head on a swivel, but not enough detail in terms of what, what does that really mean? And that goes back to what I said about risk management. You have to understand the risks in your environment. You have to do a thorough uh, uh, research effort to find out what's going on in your environment. And then you also have to spend enough time working on understanding the, the normal so that you can spot the abnormal. And this goes into play in, in terms of uh, counter ambush. Counter ambush, uh, ideally, you don't want to be in an ambush. So it's countering the counter. We want to be way before. We want to catch the clues that something is going to happen as early as possible. Now, the worst case scenario is you drive up into an ambush, and then there, there are some specific things you can do. But our awareness of the surroundings are going to 
uh, give us a chance to survive. If we're caught by surprise on an ambush site, statistics show uh, between you know 90 and 95 percent of the time the bad guy's going to win. Especially if we're caught by surprise. Now, if we're aware of our surroundings and we're picking up cues in the environment, we should see something before the first shots fire. Hopefully. Now, if it's an IED in the road, hopefully we picked up something that's coming out. But in general, before the attack happens, there are clues in the environment that can help us beat the surprise factor. If we beat that surprise factor, our chances of survival go up tremendously. So going back to, we have to be aware of our surroundings. We have to factor in the research part. What is it, when I move from the US to Southeast Asia, the, the, the normal patterns of life change. And I have to be in tune with that. I have to do the research to find out that the threats are different, that the environment's different, and I have to become clued in to that new rhythm I like it. I like it. Well, Sean, what, what, what are your thoughts on this? Because, you know, obviously you, you hopefully are not every day presented with an ambush situation. Um, but what, 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 are, what are your questions for, for, for Tom? You were part of a protective detail that works with the CIA. I, I've done similar things as a contractor, protecting people who are working with agent handlers mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. So it's similar sort of thing to what you were talking about. And it actually brought back a lot of memories for me when you spoke about how the ground level truth with the ground troops is very different to how it is up the chain mm-hmm. and maybe how it's portrayed to the media. You'll get a lot of background on, on how I learned the craft and how I was influenced by working on the other side. I, I, I got a chance to work in the operational element within the agency, specifically targeting terrorists. And one of the things we had to learn first was um, how does a terrorist think? You know, learn what the bad guy is thinking. How do they operate? What are their tactics and procedures and, and protocols? So then you reverse engineer. And that, that is exactly what we need to do in terms of our threats to our protective. We're uh, in the protection side. We need to understand our enemy and understand what they need to do, what things in the environment they need so they can accomplish their mission and take that away from them, or at least be aware of what they need so that if we see something that fits into that profile, we raise our alert level. What we found is interesting part of this is protection back in the 70s and 60s was the iron box, which is um, people with guns, armored cars. We found that the enemy figured out a way around that. So we had to to figure out a counter to to their evolution. And that was finding a weakness in their attack cycle. And so at, at the agency, we got very interested in surveillance and picking up on the clues that we are under surveillance because that's your pre-warning. That's the before the incident happens. Uh, and it gives us a chance to do something before the bullets start flying. So, Tom, I'd be interested to pick up on something you said. Uh, you know, it, the clues are there, but the culture is sometimes different, especially let's say you move into a new area of operations. You're used to, I don't know, Midwest uh, culture in, in the States. And then and then you, you suddenly arrive in Southeast Asia with lots of different uh, smells and cultures and, you know, a- a- everything is different. How do you then adapt your observance of the signs? That's a good question. And it takes effort. And a lot of this has to do with your ability to incorporate 
some basic skills into your everyday life. So it, it can't be, I just turn it on when, I'm, when I go to Asia. It's something you have to learn and it's situational awareness. That's the term we use now, situational awareness skills. But uh, actually back in the day, we used it tradecraft. It was operational tradecraft. And um, when I was working against the terrorist groups, I would uh, fly into a country, most of the time solo, and I would spend the, the next uh, two weeks or so, eight hours or more a day, either walking or in a car, driving around and getting the rhythms of the place, learning how people act. What is their, their typical behavior? How, what is it like at night versus daytime? What is it like during the weekend versus the, the weekday? And you pick up these rhythms of life and you set up a mental force field in terms of what's normal and what's an anomaly. And that's the, really the only way to do that is because the cultures different, differ. Once you become attuned to that new environment, now you've got a chance to put in place the other things that you bring to the table, which are your, your surveillance detection, your operational procedures, your advances on sites. Uh, they piggyback on that. But if you don't have that baseline, you're going to walk into something and you're not going to see it coming because you won't recognize it as an anomaly. Yeah, I think a great way of describing it is, uh, I don't know if you've come across the Kubas color codes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, that, that's great. Situational awareness. Your general person walking along the street, you're walking around in you know, code white, they're blissfully unaware of everything that's going on around them. Generally, people who are working in the trade or craft, you, you need to be working at a different level. You know, you, you need to be aware of your surroundings, relaxed, but aware. And if you're in a more high threat environment, then you step up another level, you become more in tune with the environment and everything you see. If you go from white to red in a second, you, you walk into an ambush. If you want to wait, you're completely caught by surprise. So yeah, you definitely need to you know, be in tune with your environment, be aware and keep abreast of everything that's going on. Color codes are, are great. Um, Cooper added, you know, put those together uh, for his system of gunfighting, but it applies across the board. And, it, and what I found is for people who are not familiar with that, um, driving, uh, when you first learn to drive, you're looking at the mirrors, you're, you're concentrating on the wheel, you've got so many things going through your head. And the problem is you've got too many things. But as you build up your basic skills, you start to utilize your brain on more higher level. So now you're looking ahead in traffic. You don't have to worry about where you're moving your hand in terms of the shifts or steering. And it's that, it's that layering process that allows you to operate at the highest levels under high stress. You're taking in the environment and all the clues, but immediately upon recognizing something that is an anomaly, now you've, you ratchet up your awareness levels and you're even more focused. Uh, example in the driving mode is um, we all get pretty good at reading people's behavior. And a lot of times we can read when somebody's going to turn left or right before they even put the indicator on because of the way they turn their head, they turn their shoulders, and we don't even think about it. It's when you get to that level in your environmental awareness that you're operating at peak. And that that gives you the, that second two seconds where you're seeing something, an anomaly in, in your environment, and you're able to react on it so you're not surprised and you could put in place or, or put into action your pre-planned maneuvers. And I credit that actual circumstance 
with my being able to talk to you right now because of a situation in Somalia. If, if our driver hadn't reacted when he did, we would have been right on the X and it would have been um, a bad day. I know you mentioned at one point as well, because there's quite a few things that you said hit home with me, which mirrored things I've done in my career. And one of the big things when I left the military and I became a civilian contractor going out to Iraq, Afghanistan, all these countries, the first time I landed in one of these countries as a civilian, one of the first things I realized that I don't have that support. If we have an, if an incident happens, like, you know, you get ambushed or the worst happens, who's coming to get you? Yeah. And, and I think you mentioned at one of your interviews, maybe some people at times are having the elements of support that you maybe need to carry out the task. And, and one that hit home with me, I, which I think you triggered my memory, the first job I went on in Iraq, went out and one of the guys, we got hit with an IED, guy died. The other guy who was actually employed by the US military, he, he got injured, but I remember the helicopter coming in. They took the injured guy away, but the guy who died, he wouldn't take him because he was the contractor. He wasn't military. We had to stick him in the back seat of our car and drive him into the camp. And that was my first job as a civilian. And I remember going into the camp and thinking, wow, it's a whole different ball game now. Once you've left the forces and you're working as a contractor, you're on your own. So maybe, maybe Tom, that's a good segue. So obviously we've got a lot of private contractors and corporate security, you know, in our, in our listenership, readership. Mm -hmm. um, what's your advice for that transition? Because as Sean just mentioned, it, it can be quite brutal. Um, and, and, and in the counter ambush situation, when you don't have the backup, when you don't have the architecture, how should you try and adapt uh, as a professional? Oh, that's, that's an excellent question. When I first started working at uh, uh, protection details, when we were like in Somalia, um, GPS were three uh, letters in the alphabet. There was no such animal. <laughs> and QRF, uh, quick reaction force, no such thing. So you were on your own. And then uh, I worked in Northern Africa in a place that was being blown up for five years straight. If something happened to you, there's nobody to come rescue. So you have to put into your protocols, your own backup plans, your own way of dealing with that. Uh, it's nice to have big army with you, but it, but in a situation where if you're on the pro in the private sector, uh, you, you don't, you're not going to have that. Now, in terms of contractors, prior to 9-11, we didn't use contractors uh, to do our protection out in the, the rest of the world. It was all staff. But after 9-11, we had so much work. We couldn't do it all without staffers. So we got contractors. And we had a, a very strong um, uh, terms of supervisory to subordinate number ratio. We, we didn't go 10 and one. It was one staffer and three contractors or uh, uh, one staffer and five contractors, but never more than that, really, because we needed that coordination and that uh, leadership. So I worked with a lot of contractors. And unfortunately, they, uh, you only really hear about the bad things and you never really hear about all the good things that they did. I had fantastic people working for me all over the world. I had them, you know, besides Iraq and Afghanistan and, and Pakistan. And um, it's a tough business to be in, in the contract world. Everybody thinks they make a ton of money, but they have to pay their own insurance. And in some of the companies they work for, don't take care of them as well as others do. So it's a necessary part of the way we operate. We could do what we do without them. And I have a lot of admiration for um, all the gentlemen who, who go out and do that. And they're away from families through the holidays, uh, a lot of times 365 days a year. 
it's a tough, it's a tough life. No, I definitely agree with that. I, I mean, using contracted individuals in some of these countries may have been unheard of many years ago, but they, they do bring a lot to the table. I mentioned Kandahar. We operated there and we had to do some stuff with a government agency who was going into the city and, and they, had, they obviously had special forces who could go in and take them in. But they didn't take them in because they weren't operating in the city at that time. So they didn't have all of the atmospherics, what was going on there, the knowledge, the situational awareness. We did because we were going in quite a lot. So we brought a lot to the table for them. And when we finished the job, they were like, wow, you know, we couldn't have done that without you guys. And it's the same the world around. Absolutely. It's adapt and overcome. And uh, I know that, you know, that's a common phrase, but it really is. The, the more you were able to adapt and utilize the resources in your area. When we first started doing our protection work, it was called the Protective Operations Cadre back in my day. And we weren't given nearly the resources we needed. So we would have to scrounge what we could. Uh, we up-armored our own vehicle with uh, plates from a helicopter and uh, disguise things, uh, anything we could think of. And it's that mindset of always adapting, looking around and seeing how can I blend in more? Um, what, where are the people who have what I need? Or where's the sources of information I need? I, a lot of times it's, it's people you don't expect. For me, a lot of times it was the, the knowledge of the corporals and the lowest rank people who are working in, in terms of Iraq, in the outside of the green zone, they had a better feel for what was going on in the environment. So I picked their brains all the time. And a lot of times they didn't understand how much knowledge they, they had accumulated and how much it was useful for us. So it was great uh, to, to actually get make contact with them. I used to bring them um, pogey bait, as they used to call it, you know, uh, snacks and drinks in um, payment for the info. Yeah, for sure. Whenever I worked on a team, the best teams were always the ones that you had individuals from different backgrounds. Everyone brought something different to the table and you've got to, you've got to use their assets. Pay respects to everybody because everyone brings something different to that piece of the puzzle that you're trying to solve. Well, Tom, I like that you picked up on using helicopter plates for your up-armoring endeavours. And when people talk about counter-ambush, I suppose people think about MRAP People think about uh, M6, M7, low-profile vehicles, uh, but it, as you say, you might not have it, and sometimes maybe a taxi is the, the best thing. We, we often have Joe Ortera from the Vehicle Dynamics oh, Institute awesome. uh, at our events, and, and, and yeah, I mean, we had a fantastic hour-long session just last month, and so many topics in protective mobility. Uh, could you talk to perhaps improving your protective mobility when you are avoiding ambush, in perhaps an area such as Southeast Asia, and maybe when you're on your own? Absolutely, it's a great question. Um, one of the things, uh, we, we started our protection uh, program because there was an ambush on an individual in the Philippines back in 1990. Um, this is Colonel Nick Rowe, and he was killed by a terrorist. And at that point, we really said, we need to look at this problem differently. We're never going to have enough guys with guns and armored cars and that. So what do we need to do to be more effective? So we decided to go down the stealth road and we try to do our protection details a little different. So we really focused on being stealthy, being under the radar. And that has worked tremendously for us. I can speak to up to about 2013 when I retired. 
but we had never lost a protectee doing our primary mission, which was in mobile protective operations. When our people were forced to do static, like in Benghazi and in, um, in Afghanistan, when we lost some people uh, at coast, those were static positions, not our normal duties. But doing mobile protection, doing it the way we, we devised the stealth mode, we didn't lose any protectees and we lost only one protection uh, agent. And that methodology has proven the, the test of time. And I think a lot of protection details now are looking at that mode. You know, do we want to show up with the suits and the shiny glasses, a Secret Service style, or do we want to come in so that they don't even know that that executive has protection on them? And so we started using not only the protection detail, we started using surveillance detection, counter surveillance elements. And that's another side of the house. Uh, I think we were the first ones to actually have a, a counter surveillance unit attached to our directors, the director of central intelligence. That was one of my first actually positions in the counter, counter surveillance world. And that methodology of being stealthy, I think, you know, they, they don't shoot what they can't see. And, and let me press you on this because I'm, I'm always thinking in the mind of the you know, private contractor or the corporate security world. What, what can they do? Can they just equally be as stealthy? Um, what, what are some kind of takeaways for them? You know, is it take a taxi? You know, what, it, what, what is it that they can do? Absolutely. One of our directors like to go in a sedan every once in a while. He just, and sometimes he would actually drive. Not that we wanted him to, but he would just do it. He'd jump in there and it was like, we'd have to just uh, file in. And we didn't use Suburbans and Expeditions. We like to use the, the top of the level armored cars that were sedans. And we would make sure that they weren't absolutely spotless clean or even undented. We would we'd make sure that we looked as much like the indigenous people as possible. So the United States, if you're operating domestically or in the Western world, that's not very difficult. When you go into like Southeast Asia or, or the Middle East, you've got to make an effort to, to blend in. Clothing wise, um, a lot of the, the contractors would go with a beard, but that doesn't necessarily camouflage you if you're wearing a bandolier and a body armor and you, you, you jump out and you look like Frankenstein, <laughs> you're not fooling anybody. So we would operate with the idea of how do we do this maximum protection while maintaining anonymity? Do we need to have the diamond formation when we're walking our protectee? I mean, what's the risk level? If, if people don't know who this guy is and we have one guy walking with him and one guy a couple of feet in front, some guy off to the side, and then somebody up on an elevated position watching the whole area. That's pretty good coverage. And it would be very difficult if you're not time and place predictable for a bad guy to get you. You'd have to basically just be unlucky to run into somebody who recognizes the guy on the spur of the moment. So there's a variety of ways of doing this. If you don't have to deal with the war zone level of armament, you know, uh, long guns and all that body armor, it's a lot easier to do this. And stealth. I'm a big believer. I, I worked it in all kinds of different environments. I saw how effective it was, even in the war zones. Even if they say, if, even if the bad guy watches you drive by and says, boy, that's weird. By the time they've kind of started thinking about doing something, you're already gone. 
Yeah, that's exactly how we used to operate in Kandahar. It, it was during the day, the Westerners, you know, you stood out. There, there was no way you could disguise yourself, no matter what you did. So a lot of our operations we did at night. When we had to be in the city, we'd leave the compound, we'd drive at night time. We'd have the, the jingly trucks, you know, lights taped up, our you know, no reverse um, brake lights. Honestly, from a distance, if anyone had something set up, it would just look like there's a motorbike coming down the street because we only have one front light. Yeah. You'd have our rear vehicles behind, completely no lights driving with NVGs. Um, we, we went a long way to try and make things as stealthy as we could. Once we got in the city, we'd lock down in whatever compound we went to for a period of days and then leave again during the night to come back. Never set in a pattern. But yeah, it was quite um, like a stressful environment to work in over there. That's, that's great innovation. That, 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 that's the type of innovation that really makes it difficult for the bad guy. You want to break up your patterns. You don't want to give them an easy target. Tom, I, I'm, I'm keen to find out from you any thoughts on Southeast Asia for, for the uninitiated. Now, I, I say this because, you know, we have a lot of colleagues who travel from the UK or the US or Europe and they, and they travel to a FR destination. Right now, of course, people aren't traveling as much, but in preparation for their return, is it too superficial to sort of ask for some top tips for Southeast Asia in general? No, I, I think it's uh, very appropriate, but, uh, but I'll go back to the basics again. Preparation is everything. It's the ounce of prevention versus the pounded cure. And starting out with doing research on where you're going and what the threat levels are. In many cases, in most cases, the biggest threat to a traveler is not a terrorist, it's not a criminal, it's road accidents. So understanding your transportation patterns, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna take a bus? You're gonna take a train, you're gonna fly. Um, you should make your decisions based on the risk. Also looking at crime patterns and terrorism. What are the, what, you know, what's common there? In certain places, it's suicide bombs. Other places, it's car bombs. Other places, it's motorcycle attacks. You've got a, uh, two people on the back of a motorcycle. Um, so understanding that. But going back to the basics again, starting out being aware of your surroundings, getting the, the patterns of life down so you understand, and having contingency plan. So you should have some basic plans. And they go... These plans work whether you're in the United States or UK or in Sahara Africa or uh, down in South America. Um, you should have a form, your, your method of communication. You should have backup plans. You should understand the emergency action plans in the environment that you're in. These are super basic fire plans. In most Western countries, fire, fire safety is taken care of for you. But in these other countries, they lock the fire escapes. So what you consider to be a non-issue is a serious issue over there. So understanding that threat and then working your basic plans. And those plans should work whether you're, as I said, in a mall in the United States or in a mall in Nairobi. I like it. Well, no, that, that's great. And, you know, we had Max Segal on uh, not so long ago, and he, he does hotel security. And he gave us a fantastic story about Nairobi hotels locking fire escapes. Um, so I mentioned that because it was such a such a good synergy. So what's what's next for you? Uh, are you uh, working on any new projects uh, or any new uh, articles? I'm working on some more in-depth articles about situational awareness. I, I'm currently set up to do a training session for a company I work for uh, called uh, Curie Group on the 6th. And um, what 
we've done is we've turned the learning, the, the skill set and, and the training set for situational awareness to another level. We've taken it to a, a, a pra- I call it practical tactical. Instead of just platitudes, we make it actual usable data. How do you learn to incorporate better situational awareness skill sets into your life? And these are skill sets that last forever and that you can teach to they, uh, your family members um, and your coworkers, uh, because th- this is, that's the baseline. I have a firm belief that with my years of training CIA personnel to go into dangerous places, it really always came back to that baseline, understanding your environment, prep, preparing and having a plan. All right. I, uh, I, think, I think this has been an excellent tour de force around this uh, very, very pertinent topic of counter ambush. People aren't traveling, but they're going to be traveling. And maybe even whilst they're not traveling, they're in danger of ambush, especially in residential details. So this is one topic to watch. Um, Sean, do you have any final thoughts? No, I just wanted to ask Thomas, what, what do you prefer doing? I know you've done training as well. Do you prefer the operational role or do you prefer training? I know you mentioned you've trained presidential details. I've also done that in the past in Guinea. I remember going over there, training the presidential detail around there. And the one thing I learned, as soon as we started teaching, it became clear, some of these guys haven't even been taught how to learn. We had to go so back to the basics just to teach them how to tell the time. And I just found it really interesting. And just want to get your thoughts on training. How have you found that in the African countries? Oh, I miss the operational side, but I find that I really think that I, I can bring more to the table on the training side now. And... I've got enough experience working with a, such a variety of people, all the, everything from tier one groups all the way down to uh, housewives, because we would put people overseas, families. And I, I really believe that there are some basics that, that everybody can learn and that are being kind of skipped on the way to, like in the United States, to concealed carry training or moving to Karab Maga or any of the other martial arts. We're missing that first point, which is avoid, avoid, avoid. Um, so I, for me, it's the training now. I'm, I'm really interested in that. And then putting together more of the science behind this. There's, there's some actual science, science kind of data that's coming out about crime and about the, the types of threats that we all face. Fantastic. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you very much, Thomas, for your time. Uh, Sean West and myself, Thank you ever so much for joining the Circuit Magazine podcast. My pleasure. Well, if that hasn't made you want to go out and buy and read his book, Guardian, I don't know what will. What a fantastic career. 24 years in the CIA and related services. Loads of lessons to take away. Uh, what, what, what did you think of it all, John? Yeah, it was a great listen. Didn't disappoint at all. And I like the fact that you've linked it to going out and buying his book. And I can't remember what the question was you asked him, but what I heard was he was a big adventure reader and then he was in the CIA. I don't know what was in the middle of that, but I kind of loved that. You know, growing up as a child, we read the adventure books and some of us do go on to live out those uh, childhood dreams, right? And it certainly sounds like Thomas has done that. You can just tell that by his whole passion it really comes through in the interview. It does. And, uh, you know, we're very, very lucky to have him. Uh, of course, he's very much in demand. And 
being in Southeast Asia at the moment, it's it's a very interesting place. I, I would have liked to have gotten a little bit more out of him. Uh, and maybe next time we can ask him about that geography. We're talking about geographies. In fact, Asia Pacific region, we know it's hot. Last night, I ran an event in Australia virtually uh, with uh, Gav Snyder, a big friend of the industry. Many people know Gav. I mentioned that because, in fact, we're going to have some fantastic content uh, on corporate security modernization on uh, our BBA Connect app. Yeah, BBA Connect app. I'm pleased that you mentioned that. There's so much going on there at the moment. It's a fantastic place to be. There's some really great discussions. We're sharing some great content. And this this might sound like a strange thing to admit, but I'm really enjoying it. Being part of the team that administers and, and runs something like the British Bodyguard Association, it can feel like an enormous amount of work at times. But I have to say, since we've brought the app on board and with all the users that are in there right now it's a fun engaging place to be and and a great place to learn as well and people you know people are active and they're genuinely uh, wanting to help each other um even me uh, this week uh, we've been talking about networking on the app so i think okay i'm not a security expert not a security guru but i can talk about networking so I, i gave a couple of stories where i'd seen it done poorly and people had taken that up and then we ran with it I really enjoy the format. You know, we host the podcast inside the app as well. So it makes sense. There's so much, so many stories being shared and really valuable information that we can listen to it, we can watch it, and then we can go straight into one of the discussion groups and pick up that thread and take it to a much deeper level. So I would say to anyone who isn't yet on BBA Connect to do so, download it, give it a try. It's free. You can start using it within minutes. And we've got lots of options inside the app if you want to take that journey a little bit further. I certainly enjoy it. And, uh, you know, it connects well with a lot of our social media work. uh, So uh, evidently we do want you to uh, download the app, but please do check out and subscribe to our social media channels, including Twitter and including Facebook. And we're also on LinkedIn. So please do like and share our stories as they come out and share this podcast in particular. I'm, I'm really looking forward to uploading more things to it with all the latest events uh, that are coming up. We mentioned last week, the 2nd of April Southwest Forum in the United States. Uh, people like Chuck Randolph, big friend of the industry, are very kindly speaking. You'll see lots more content uh, on the app coming very soon. Yeah, we're working on issue 57 of the Circuit Magazine as well at the moment, Pelham. And actually, in the interview with Thomas, I heard Sean reference the Cooper's Color Code. And that's really topical. We've got a fantastic article going in this coming issue, uh, wrote by our regular contributor, Ben Gunn, who is uh, extremely knowledgeable on the subject. So look out for that one when it hits the virtual shelves. I definitely will. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, this edition. And in fact, all of our uh, podcasts are coming up. John, it's great to catch up. I, I'm very much looking forward to next week. Absolutely. See you then. You have been listening to the Circuit Magazine podcast. Be sure to subscribe and be sure to not miss an episode.